In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And they were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanuta. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. I have to tell you that this is where it stops being fun for me. I love teaching about my king. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, and I love talking about his mighty deeds and his victories against the kingdom of the enemy. But chapter 8 is where things take just a decided turn. In a few weeks, um, we'll be coming to what scholars call the hinge of the Gospel of Mark, where Yeshua stops ministering around the Galilee and begins his final trek toward Jerusalem to die and to complete the divine plan to destroy the authority of the powers of darkness. That's why he came. Not to defeat the Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, and Herodians, but to deal with the source of evil plaguing mankind. He did this out of a purity of love and, and by virtue of his perfect intentions towards us. The likes of which, you know, we can only try to imagine. But it's hard to talk about. And I'm not ashamed to get emotional and cry when I do. So if you don't like tears, fair warning. You know, this isn't a storybook for me. This is history. And more than history, it's like, Looking at a newspaper story about the tragic death of someone that I love. The brutal death of someone that I love. And yes, we can never forget that he is victorious now and seated at the right hand of glory. But as I read through it, I'm reminded that he really faced all of this for us. This is the history of his life on earth. And... It's impossible for me to read it in a detached way. So, you know, let's let's just do this. Um, hi, I'm Tyler Rosenquist, and welcome to Character in Context, where 
I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of scripture with an eye to developing the character of Messiah and with a frog in my throat. <clears> throat> it's going to be fun. If you prefer written material, I have five years worth of blog at theancientbridge.com as well as my uh, six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it, and it's called Context for Kids, and I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. You can find the link for those on my website. Past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com, and transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com. If you have kids, I also have a weekly broadcast called Context for Kids, where I teach them Bible context in a way that teaches them why they can trust God and, and how he wants to have a relationship with them through the Messiah. All scripture this week comes courtesy of the ESV, the English Standard Version, but you can follow along with whatever Bible you want. A list of my resources can be found attached to the transcript for part two of this series at theancientbridge.com. I uh, ugh, I always feel enormously depressed and defeated after reading this section. I just got to say, the irony is over the top. Now, to review the last two weeks, Yeshua, not the last two weeks in Yeshua's life, last two weeks of doing this teachings, okay, so Yeshua, or you may call him Jesus, is in Gentile territory. Now, first, he traveled from the Galilee to the region of Tyre, which is a, a wealthy coastal city north of Galilee, where he delivered a stinging reality check to a Gentile woman before delivering her daughter from demonic oppression. Then he, for unknown reasons, traveled like 25 miles north to Sidon, and then southeast to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, to the Decapolis region, where he healed a man who was deaf and who suffered from a speech impediment. So the Gentile population is reacting to him the exact same way that the normal everyday Jews reacted to him, flocking to him and proclaiming that he does all things well. But those who knew the scriptures best, you know, not so much. Now let's start out with the first verse of Mark chapter 8. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, Okay. In those days, so we know that this isn't somewhere else or a long time later. Mark likes to group um, incidents by theme, incidents that didn't necessarily happen back to back, like the controversy dialogues, you know, in order to teach us things, you know, in a certain way. But by indicating the time, we know that this isn't one of those cases. Yeshua is still in the region of the Decapolis and so he will be more than likely teaching a mixed audience there, um, using the same terminology as usual, uh, polis ochlos, meaning a great crowd. Of course, you know, the Jews always came to hear him teach, uh, but because of the specific wording in this account and the lack of 
the kinds of words that we find elsewhere, scholars generally agree that this crowd was either mostly Gentile or, you know, at least a, a, a mixed crowd in some way. And we have our first mention of the disciples since the hand-washing controversy when Yeshua prepared his disciples for the future option of having dealings with Gentiles and laid the actual foundations for Peter to understand his vision in Acts 10 that Gentiles are not automatically defiled and that they can share table fellowship with them. Who you ate with in, in the ancient world um, signaled acceptance um, or non-acceptance, you know, depending on who you, if you refuse to eat with them. And we can't have a body of believers at separate tables and call it okay with God. So we have our general location, the Decapolis, which we discussed last week, and the time, which is after uh, he performed the deliverance and um, healing of, you know, two Gentiles. Now, a great crowd gathered, and, and no wonder when he's healed a deaf and speech-impaired man and the man's friends are blabbing about it everywhere, right? And they had nothing to eat. As usual, Mark doesn't tell us the specifics of what Yeshua is saying to them over the course of these three days. You know, if we didn't have Matthew... <laughs> And to a lesser extent, Luke and, you know, John, we would be flying blind for sure. But Mark is concerned with Yeshua as the arm of the Lord, the promised Yahweh warrior of the prophets, and especially Isaiah, you know, vanquishing the kingdom of Satan. Oh, okay. Let me stop here real quick and cover the theory that there was only one miraculous feeding, and that this story is repeated twice. Um, and you ought to know that Matthew includes this account too. So he has, Matthew has two feedings, Mark has two feedings, Luke and John have one. But um, to accept the theory that there's only one feeding and it just got told again, we have to ignore verses 8 through 21 of this same chapter where he's going to flat out mention both events as separate incidents. Um, sometimes people do this when they object to the second feeding being in clearly Gentile territory outside of the land of Israel. Although there are also a couple of other reactions, but and reason, I'm sorry, reasons, not reactions. <laughs> but if we go with one feeding, then we have to practically eliminate 46% of chapter 8, and it's way too important to allow that to happen. Peter's confession directly hinges on this, as does the irony of the Pharisees demanding a sign from heaven. And the two-stage healing of the blind man is virtually robbed of all of its meaning, as we'll see. But, so, no, this, this has to be a second historical event. All right, backtracking a bit. He called his disciples and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. So, like I mentioned, the disciples are being mentioned for the first time in a while, and he calls them to him. 
and tells them that he has compassion on this mixed multitude. The word is actually very urgent, all right, and gives the impression of him being very moved and worried about their welfare when he says the word translated compassion, which I can't pronounce. Now, unlike the feeding of the 5,000 who had only been with him one day, these people have been with him for three days. We also see no classic references to Jewish crowds with, you know, sheep and shepherd language. It's most likely late winter because he's about to begin his final journey to Jerusalem. And so heat is not an issue, but hunger is. By this time, you know, as Yeshua notes, they are out of any food they might have brought and show no signs of wanting to go home. Whatever he's preaching, it's working. Okay. Perhaps something like the Sermon on the Mount in, in any case, you know, these people chose to listen to Yeshua over food, which is stunning because people, you know, now are just like looking at their watches. If the sermon goes too long, they want to get to Denny's. Now keep in mind that because this was a mixed or mostly Gentile crowd, this was not the self-manifestation we see in other miracle accounts. He did it because people were going hungry and not to give clues as to his identity. He isn't manifesting himself as doing what only Yahweh can do because these people are clueless as to what the scriptures say about Yahweh. This is an act of compassion. And if there is anything further than this to be understood, it's for the benefit of the disciples who need to see a world larger than just the Jewish world. They need to see Yeshua going outside the boundaries of Israel to reach others despite the clear message, you know, first to the Syrophoenician woman of to the Jew first and then the Gentile. You know, but that doesn't mean he's going to utterly ignore them either. The disciples need to see this, even if it won't click in their minds for another full decade. And really, his feeding these people shouldn't shock us because one of the main character traits of Yahweh throughout scripture, throughout history, is that he provides food for friend and enemy and causes rain to fall both on the righteous and the unrighteous. He created the earth to provide food for people regardless. Now, another difference between this account and the feeding of the 5,000 is that Yeshua's not the one to uh, bring up the problem this time. Or no, Yeshua is the one, excuse me, to bring up the problem this time. You know, I hate to say it, but, you know, first century being what it was, they might not has, have been as concerned with the hunger of Gentiles. You know, it's just the way things were in the aftermath of the Hellenistic persecution and the ongoing Roman occupation total us versus them mentality. There was little love lost between the Jews and the Gentiles, and it went both ways. Maybe Yeshua had been waiting for them to bring it up, and they never did, so he took matters into his own hands. No clue, okay? Verse 3, And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. Yeshua cares about our needs. He is, after all, the very image of the God who feeds even his enemies. And here is another reference that scholars believe points to this being a Gentile audience. The reference to them having come from far away. 
You know, throughout the prophets, there are references to the nations coming to worship God on Mount Zion. You know, in, in reference to the um, faith of the Gentile centurion, Yeshua says the following. When Yeshua heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that's from Matthew 8. Isaiah 49, 6, he says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. What we can't call this is Yeshua revealing himself to the Gentiles because they lacked the context that would make this meaningful to them. But if he preached something like the Sermon on the Mount, then it would have stood in stark contrast to, you know, Pax Romana, the so-called Roman peace that came at the expense of the conquered and benefited only the wealthy among the Romans. Not even all the Romans, only the wealthy among the Romans. Or perhaps he taught them in parable, which, you know, is always entertaining. But three days without food? It had to be more than entertainment at that point for them to stay. Ah, uh, verse 4 and 5. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. Questioning him with this vague hypothetical, you know, they talk about the responsibility in the third person. They don't ask how they're going to feed the people as they did the last time. They don't ask how he's going to do it. No, they push it farther away with an impersonal third-person reference. How can one feed these people with bread? And like, everyone who's ever read this just face palms. <laughs> Seriously, you know, we went through this two chapters ago. You seriously have got to be kidding, guys. You know, so many things could have happened. They could have jumped up and said, Oh my gosh, we have seven loaves. We'll go get them. Stay right there just a second. You know, but that didn't happen. It's like amnesia. And yet, and yet, you know, we all ought to be blushing right now because we do this all the time. No matter how many times God provides for us, we are still like worrying about tomorrow. You know, as though we have either forgotten the past or we figured it was just a coincidence or a fluke. So don't laugh at the disciples without taking a hard look in the mirror because we are silly, faithless creatures full of nonsense just as soon as something unexpected and or unpleasant happens, you know, it's like we're brain-wiped droids. Um, and, you know, hoarding toilet paper is just a really good example. All right. 
Verse 6. And, oh, by the way, you want to talk about trusting God for food? Read the autobiography of George Mueller. He fed thousands of orphans every day for I don't know how long, just on prayer. Never asked for donations. Never asked anything. Opened up orphanages. You know, just, yeah, read about him. Verse 6. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having, having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. Unlike with the Jewish crowds, not only do we see no sheep-shepherd references, but we see no reference to green grass, or grouping them into hundreds and fifties, which you know have re which are references to the Psalms and to Exodus. And if you missed my broadcast on the feeding of the five thousand, I will link it in the transcript. It's called um, the Ultimate Five K. The uh, wilderness motifs associated with the Exodus out of Egypt are glaringly absent here. But you might be saying, "Look, he spoke the blessing before breaking the bread." Just like before, but you would be wrong. Totally different word. With the Jewish audience, Yeshua said a blessing. Eulogio. And with this crowd, he gave thanks. Eucharisteo. And uh, there are debates as to why. Perhaps with the Jewish crowd, it was enough to bless God, as was customary, but with the mixed or Gentile audience, he needed to make a show of giving credit to Yahweh. Okay, Certainly the Jewish crowd didn't need to have it explained to them about blessing God instead of the bread. Um, then he broke the bread and handed it to the disciples so that they could serve the people. Now, this was slaves' work in the ancient world. Yeshua didn't choose some lowly people out of the crowd to help him out. No. He put his disciples in the position of being slaves to all, which, of course, is what they would later become in service to the risen Lord. Um, but they still don't get it yet. And as we will see in, in a few weeks, they, they still have delusions of grandeur and future earthly glory. So it's like, sorry, Char sorry Charlie. Um, oh, by the way, they're waiting tables, which is the funny thing. What do they say in Acts? You know, we, we need to study. We need to dedicate ourselves to studying scriptures. We're not going to wait tables. <laughs> That's kind of, there's some irony there. All right. So speaking of Charlie, verse seven, and they had a few small fish and having blessed them, he said that these should also be set before them. And if you didn't get the Sorry Charlie reference with respect to the fish, you're just too danged young for me. All right? <sighs> so now, or you don't watch any TV. Now, he actually does bless the fish, which is weird. And I don't know if it should read that he spoke a blessing because of the fish or what, because Jewish prayers, you know, they don't bless the food itself. The food is already blessed because it's food. This isn't like a Cheeto, you know, where like Tim Hawkins, you're asking God to turn it into a carrot stick as it travels down into your stomach. And yes, I will find it on YouTube and link it into the transcript. You know, 
<laughs> if you don't know Tim Hawkins, you definitely should change that. So anyway, it's it's kind of a mystery. But it, it also really doesn't matter that much. Again, you know, maybe Yeshua is making sure that the Gentiles understand that this is not a magic trick. The only thing worse than allowing them to go hungry is to appear to be using magic to feed them, right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. It's kind of messed up no matter what. <laughs> but uh, that, that's the really... Ah, oh, we're, we're almost at the break here, so I'm, I'm not going to go on to that next thought, but, you know, this, this is really, it's amazing that he's feeding Gentiles and, it, and it's so overlooked. We just assume it looks like he's feeding juice again, but it, 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 he really isn't. Be right back. This is Tyler Down Rosenquist, and welcome back to the second half of Character in Context. Uh, this is our 35th part of Mark. We're talking about the, the uh, feeding of the 4,000, which is the feeding of the Gentiles. And uh, I know I was about to make an, a point before the end of the... And I, and I can't remember what it is, so hopefully it wasn't important. It probably wasn't. All right, and so we're going to go back into Mark chapter 8 and verse 8. And we've been talking about how we don't see the characteristic Jewish language being used in this crowd. We don't have the um, Exodus themes. We just have, you know, people being fed miraculously. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people and he sent them away. So they ate and were satisfied. And at the end, he still had to send them away. Um, let's look at the word basket here. The word used in this instance is different from the word for basket used in the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6. Here the word is spuris, which is a rope basket large enough to carry a person. But I don't know why anyone would want to do that. And I did not go looking to find out. Now, so this is one big basket. In the other feeding account, the word is kofinos, which is a small wicker basket. So he fed fewer people here, but they picked up seven ginormous baskets of leftovers. Whereas last time they, they picked up, they fed more, but they picked up 12 smaller baskets of leftovers. Uh, people like to do things with the numbers, you know, numerology and speculation, but that's just not me. Um, my dear friend Dina Dye is who to go to for that sort of thing. She's really good at it. Not me. We all have our strengths, you know, and it's important not to teach in areas that we're just not educated in. And yeah, that I'm not educated in that. It just, it boggles my mind. It does. But sure, she's like, look at you. Oh, look, look. And I'm just going, what is wrong with your brain? <laughs> But as you see, this account really has very little in common with the feeding of the 5,000. One, the audience is Gentile um, or mixed and, and not Jewish. Two, 
no sheep shepherd language relational language that we see when jews are being referred to three the blessings are different catered more to an audience who isn't acquainted with the blessing with blessing yahweh and his for his provision four and uh, here the people have been with him three times as long five different number of loaves and fishes as well as different amounts of leftovers six there's no mention of green grass with allusions to psalm 23 and no mention of groups of 50s and hundreds which alludes to the exodus seven the basket types are entirely different and we will see that carry over into next week's recollection of the event as well eight it was Yeshua and not the disciples who brought the need of these Gentiles and their hunger and the dangers of sending them away unfed. Okay. When it was a Jewish audience, the disciples were the ones to bring up the problem. Not, of course, that they were any more willing to do anything about it. So now what is what similar is that both represent, you know, miraculous provision of bread and fish. Also, you know, it was the disciples waiting tables in both instances. Um, got my little axe reference in there. Wasn't sure if I'd added it. They are also in a wilderness setting. Excuse me. And they all went home satisfied. Madeline Boucher points out the that the feedings of the crowds are the most definitive sign with an emphasis on the word sign that the new exodus described by isaiah had come now if you're unfamiliar with that check out my series on isaiah and the messiah which i will link in the transcript isaiah prophesied a greater exodus than the exodus out of egypt and according to the gospel writers that exodus took place at the cross when the greater Pharaoh of sin and death was defeated by the greater Moses of Yeshua. It's called the greater Exodus because not one nation was freed, but all nations. It's just greater in every way. Um, I did a specific broadcast on the new Exodus. It was um, like part two of this series. What is the gospel and what is the greater Exodus? I recorded it. To dispel some of the fantastical and damaging misconceptions out there about a land bridge forming across the sea, which is only useful for people with cars and is not supported by scripture. Um, God is not just a lover of people with technology, okay? The greater exodus is past and ongoing, but don't expect anything more glorious, you know, than the cross and the new creation reality and souls coming into the kingdom as far as Exodus goes, okay? But, you know, that was a really positive story we just went through, right? 4,000 people fed. Amazing! But wait. The other shoe is about to drop, and it's about to drop hard. Hope you're wearing your steel-toed boots. Uh, chapter 8, verse 10. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanuta. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? 
Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. I read the whole thing because just, you know, uh, we have a narrator and so we're going, a sign? How about feeding 4,000 people from seven loaves and a few fish? Okay, let's backtrack and go one verse at a time because even though it's only four verses, there's a lot of content here that we don't want to skip over. We have to understand, first of all, that this is the Beelzebul controversy part two. What we have here, once again, is the source of Yeshua's powers and authority being questioned. Oh, verse 10. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanuta. As far as scriptural mysteries goes, this one's kind of bland. No one knows where Dalmanuta is because it isn't mentioned anywhere else in the Bible or in a single other historical document. All we know is that they crossed over from the east side of the Sea of Galilee to get there. And so this district, you know, not a town, but a district, is on the western shore of the sea. Some scholars identify it with Magdala, but it really isn't that important. He's, uh, he's back in Jewish territory. That's what we know. In the Galilee and, and wherever this place is, it has local Pharisees. Not every place did. There were only five to 6,000 of them in the first century. Reading the Bible, sometimes it's easy to think of a large group like Democrats or Republicans, but they were a small, influential sect within Judaism. And because they were influential, it's not, it's not, you can't compare them with the Green Party either. Okay, that was a dig at the Green Party. <laughs> now, a political group, but not the way that we see politics. They wanted the power and authority to set halakha, which is how people walk out the commandments, and they wanted to decide this for the entire nation. There was always this belief among them that if enough Jews were faithfully keeping Torah correctly, that the Messiah would return and deliver them from foreign oppression and set up a temple state under a restored Davidic monarchy. Now, the irony, of course, is that in all the political wrangling to control the religious life of the country, of the community, of all Judaism, really, uh, they miss the Messiah. This will carry over into the next three, uh, uh, into three of the next four teachings. This theme of seeing but not seeing. We'll see it three times. Here with the Pharisees in the district of Dalmanuta, with the disciples in the boat on the trip back across the lake, with the healing of the blind man in Bethsaida, and with the disciples in Caesarea Philippi. Verse 11, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. This word for argue, argues a mild translation, all right? They were massively in his face and challenging him. This was actually a dangerous situation. What they are demanding is a sign from heaven, which went, meant one of four possibilities. One, a sign from God, because heaven was often a, a euphemism for the name of God, Yahweh. Hence, the kingdom of heaven didn't mean heaven, but meant Yahweh's kingdom, Yahweh's inbreaking kingdom. 
too. A sign from the heavens, like fire falling or brimstone or something dramatic. You know, James and John would have been glad to give him that. Three, an astrological sign that was predictive and... Um, Yes, is astrology, but they didn't seem to have any problems with that. It's bizarre with how against divination they were, but they were still very fascinated with and into astrology, as opposed to astronomy, which is just the study of heavenly bodies and totally different. Remember, the first century had a lot of superstitions and things that we look today, and rightly so, as divination and fortune telling, but they didn't see it that way. Or... They wanted a sign that he was the kind of Messiah they were looking for. You know, perhaps an apocalyptic sign pointing to the destruction of the Roman occupiers. You know, something like a special... And we see astro astronomical signs. They're perfectly legit. And maybe they were looking for something like that. So what's the purpose of asking for a sign? An astronomical sign is like an eclipse, all right? Or a blood moon when it's not expected. So what's the purpose of asking for a sign? Did they want to be dazzled? Let's look at Deuteronomy 13 real quick. Starting in verse 1. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder... And the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass. And if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So on the surface, the request for a sign seems positive, but it's a trap. They've already accused him of blasphemy despite witnessing his miracles. In fact, if he gives them a sign or a wonder to prove his legitimacy, and they make the decision that teaching people doctrines that aren't in agreement with that they aren't in agreement with, is tantamount to telling the people to go after other gods. I mean, I can't count how many times I've been accused of not following the Lord or being pagan over a silly little disagreement in how to keep a commandment, you know, legitimate or imagined. You know, if they can, if they can get him to make a sign and they say, yeah, but, you know, we saw you plucking heads on the Sabbath, so... You're a false prophet. You know, then they have grounds to kill him. But you might say, what does Yeshua have to lose? Have you ever heard of the tale of Rabbi Eliezer and the rabbis from Baba Metzi uh, 49b? Rabbi Eliezer disagreed with the majority over a legal opinion. He called down three miracles in support of his opinion and a voice from heaven agreeing with him 
so four miracles, and still the majority would not listen to him and excommunicated him for daring to disagree with the majority. Moral of the story, tradition and majority opinions matter more than miracles to an awful lot of folks. Signs from people we disagree with can always be attributed to Satan. And don't think we're any different, because nowadays you can't hardly talk anyone out of an emotionally held opinion, no matter how much scripture in context you throw at them. And especially if they have made a point of forcing said opinion on everyone and their dog. You know, it's bad enough to be wrong, but if to, to, have, to have to be wrong and need to admit it after having, you know, bashed people for years... Some people will change and slink away quietly and pretend like it never happened, but very few will do in a public about face. May we always endeavor to be teachable and correctable and humble, and when we've done wrong, we're, we admit it as pub at least as publicly as we were wrong. Verse 12, And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given this generation. This sighed deeply in his spirit, you know, same word as last week, with the deaf man with the speech impediment, the deep groaning that I believe was hurt over not being able to do anything for the Gentiles languishing under their false gods and tyrants. He could heal them, but the mission of his life was not to the Gentiles, even though it was for them. You know, I sound like John Walton, you know, who famously coined the phrase, the scriptures were written for us, but not to us. Now, before the cross, he had to 100% focus on preaching to the Jewish people. And not even all the Jewish peoples, but just the ones in the land. There were Jews all over Europe and the Scythian Empire and in Egypt, by this time, he had a very specific mission that, you know, could not be diverted from. And I think this challenge from the Pharisees, it was just, it had to be heartbreaking. It wasn't as if he hated the Pharisees, but he saw them for the stumbling blocks that they were. And, and here they were, ignoring every sign miracle, deliverance, and healing, demanding something to prove he sent by God. Yeshua's response in context is far stronger than it appears in writing, you know, because it's in oath form. Truly I say to you is a short form oath that would be understood as truly I say to you, truly I say to you that if I give you a sign, may I be cursed or you know, something of that nature. He's saying that under no circumstances would he perform like a trained monkey and do tricks for them. He wasn't going to stoop to what amounted to showing off for the crowd, and he wasn't going to misuse his power trying to prove himself. I mean, he proved he could forgive sins when he healed the paralytic for crying out loud. You've got to know when to stop talking, when to stop doing, when it serves no purpose. Okay? Sometimes it just goes in one ear and out the other. But here's the unspoken thing behind all this. Asking for a sign 
in and of itself, was a sign. A sign that they belonged to a blind, deaf, wicked, and adulterous generation. All of the evidence was there if they wanted to see Yahweh in the flesh. The works were there. He could do things that scripture says only Yahweh could do. He can do all the works of all the different prophets, but in his own authority, and even greater versions of the miracles. And, and the people, both Jew and Gentile, said he did everything well. And they speculated, okay, that he was Elijah or John the Baptist or one of the other prophets or maybe a new prophet. And that was huge because they didn't think that there were any prophets anymore. But the leadership, just as we see in Isaiah 6, were under judgment for their refusal to listen to Yahweh and his messenger. Um, Isaiah 6, starting in verse 8 here. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. And it's crazy, you know, because in 40 years it was all going to happen all over again. The destruction of the second temple and in 66 years after that the Jews would be expelled from Jerusalem permanently until just recently in history, you know, less than a hundred years ago. Jerusalem would be ravaged again in 136 of the Common Era and turned into a fully realized Roman pagan city. And the land became a wasteland. Not only did they not realize the time of their visitation, but they acted as enemies of Yahweh himself. In defending their political goals of controlling Jewish life, which we're going to talk about next week again, they lost everything. You know, that's why we have to be so careful or our, uh, you know, of, well, of our own agendas and not so sold on our doctrinal beliefs, you know, that we miss movements of God in the world. Sometimes, sometimes our agendas are wrong. And if we, do not have a personal and teachable relationship with Yahweh through Yeshua and other people. If we are not familiar with the goodness, patience, generosity, and mercy of his character, then we might miss it while subconsciously believing that somehow he's like us and the same things that are important to us are, imp are important to him. 
but his concern is with the kingdom. And if our agendas do not serve the kingdom the way he wants it to be served in some tangible way, then they really need, be, need to be reevaluated. As uh, N.T. Wright pointed out about this, this whole episode with the feeding of the 4,000, what we are dealing with here and for the next four weeks are clashes in kingdom expectation. Okay, so we got one more verse for this week. Verse 13, and he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. You notice that Yeshua does this whenever there is a crisis point and, and or danger uh, of arrest, okay? Things are heating up, and he's about to turn south for his final trip to Jerusalem. But first he has to go north for a vitally important piece of business before his death. And, uh, oh, man. So things are about to get, things are about to get crazy. Let's see, next week we've got, oh, we've got the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of the Herodians and the declaration of Yeshua as the Messiah, and uh, then they're go he's going to take them up to Caesarea Philippi, which is on Mount Hermon, and we're going to do, I'm going to do a teaching, I'm actually going to teach about first Enoch, I don't believe it's scripture, but if you want to know about why Mount Hermon is important, we need to look in first Enoch, because it will tell us beliefs. It will tell us how they interpreted scripture at that time. It's a very important document. And then, um, he's going to, the gloves are going to come off. He's going to tell them about his mission. And then we're going to have the transfiguration. So we've got a big four weeks coming up teachings. Anyway, so that is it for this week. I will, I will see you next week. It's getting exciting. Music